Oh, hi then. This is M.P. Fitzgerald, author of A Happy Bureaucracy, and I'm pretending to play the jazz piano. <laughs> no one is holding a gun to my head to say this, but they are withholding the antidote. Funding for this podcast comes from ebook and paperback sales of A Happy Bureaucracy, the, um, the book. Send a warning to do straight-laced and prudish books on your bookcase by adding paperback copies of A Happy Bureaucracy, Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland, and post-apocalyptic pirates. Just head over to my website, mpfitzgerald.art. Once more, that's mpfitzgerald.art. Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland The Happy Bureaucracy Book 2 by M.P. Fitzgerald Narrated by Gary Bennett Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are even more gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart, also, child endangerment. Did I mention child endangerment? Chapter 4 The cacophony of bullets that had initially rung out had slowly become a chorus as the slavers behind had found a natural beat to their grisly deed. Arthur's back was wet with sweat from the hot metal of the van, and his jaw clenched in terror. Only a few of the IRS agents were brave enough, or desperate enough, to fire back at the city. But as none of them were trained on how to fire a gun, they were only contributing to the noise of the battle, and nothing else. Battle might have been too forgiving of a word, as the IRS agents were far from threatening. The vans were close enough to each other, but far away enough from the city that running from one to the other for cover was a crapshoot. Seeing that the vans were all facing the city... Getting to a driver's seat, however, was assured death. To Arthur's shock, Ralph had declared that he would call for backup and lunged toward the nearest van. This act of decisiveness was admirable, if not a bit surprising. And had he lunged toward the van that actually contained the radio, respectable. It took a full minute of arguing with a subordinate for Ralph to figure it out, and between the shrieking of gunfire, Arthur sighed with annoyance. Arthur watched Ralph run over to the third van and argue with another subordinate before running back to Arthur unharmed. Did you do it? Arthur asked. Did you call for backup? What? Uh, no. No, I forgot which form to file. Ralph answered, not making eye contact. Arthur hoped that Ralph felt perpetually ashamed in his life. It did not matter if they decided to skip the form on their end and just take the radio away from the agent assigned to it. The radio operator on the receiving end would not verify any request without the form's details read back to him. They had to file that form if they wanted reinforcements. God damn it, Ralph! I told you, it's Form 1199B, the one in Burgundy! Arthur screamed at him. Ralph nodded with wide eyes, then rushed over to the other van once more. Arthur watched as Ralph argued with the same agent as before then felt a tiny bit of relief when he saw that Ralph was handed a form. This lasted all but a second when Arthur realized that it was not Burgundy. 
Once Ralph was done filling it out, more arguing ensued, and Ralph sprinted back to Arthur. That wasn't the right one, Arthur, you dipshit. The operator wouldn't validate it. That's not my fault. I told you to get 1199B, Arthur screamed back at him. Oh, form 1199B. I just asked for form 1199. I thought it was the right one because it was purple, like you said. I said burgundy, Ralph. Burgundy is closer to red than purple. The one you grabbed was obviously maroon. You are an anal twat, Arthur. The gunshots ceased. The tentative quiet that had taken the place of the gunshots was almost as menacing. Anything could take its place. Ralph looked at Arthur, and his face struggled to find a position between weary optimism and abject terror. Suddenly, the electronic cackle of a megaphone pierced the air, and a voice like buttered grease boomed out into the wasteland. Arthur did not have to peek behind the van to see him. He recognized the voice instantly. It was the colonel. We don't want y'all near our city, boys. So why don't you just get back into those vans of yours and skedaddle before we turn them into cheese grates, the colonel announced. A stillness in movement reflected a stillness in the silence that followed. Yet as quickly as the stillness had seized the IRS agents, it was broken. An IRS agent dashed out from the cover to the front of the van he was hiding behind. Before he could make three steps, the dirty crack of gunfire reverberated and the man fell dead to the ground. The electric cackle of the megaphone rang out once more. <laughs> I'm just shitting you, the colonel said, sifting laughter between words. We stopped firing because we're saving bullets. You boys move a muscle and we kill you. The barrage of bullets they had initially been dealt was reactionary. The city was far more disciplined with the colonel commanding them. Now the shots would be purposeful instead of just angry. Running between the vans now was more whack-a-mole than crapshoot. Arthur's back was still soaked in sweat, but now it was definitely from terror. It was hard to believe that he had asked for this just days ago. Put me on the front lines, Arthur mocked himself in his head. Boyd had done exactly that, and instead of freeing a city's worth of slaves, Arthur would die unceremoniously next to his cubicle rival. He took a pen from his pocket and started clicking the top of it furiously. It was the only sound being made for a pregnant minute. When the panic would not subside, Arthur turned to Ralph. Well? Well what? Ralph replied with a stern brow. Well, are you going to file for reinforcements or what? Are you serious? You heard that man. If we move, we die. But it has to come eventually. We should just wait and pray. That is the dumbest plan you could possibly make, Arthur said, clutching his pen far too tight. Boyd is the embodiment of our bureaucracy. He is not going to move an inch without the proper paperwork. And when it is apparent that no one else is coming, the colonel is going to send his men to come out from behind the gates and pick us off one by one. We need to get that form filed. Ralph's face tensed. He turned to Arthur and squared his shoulders then put a firm finger into Arthur's chest. All right, you do it, he said. Why me? You're the leader. That's right. I am the leader. You do it. I order you to, Ralph said, lowering his finger, then raising a brow. Arthur had pushed too far. Ineffective or not, Ralph had the title, 
and people with titles demanded obedience and respect above all, most especially the ineffective ones. What exactly are you going to do if I don't, Ralph? He asked with clenched teeth. I'm going to write you up and put an infraction on your record. You wouldn't. You're not that cruel. I would. Faced with a bullet to the brain or a write-up at work, Arthur took a deep breath, then sprang into action. He pushed himself off of the van and began in a sprint. He had taken only four steps when the familiar sound of gunfire thundered in the air. Dirt erupted into the air by his feet as the bullet missed its mark. But before he could register it in his adrenaline-fueled mind, there was another crack of gunfire. Whatever it hit, Arthur did not know, but it did not hit him. He reached the van just in time before another shot was fired. The van Arthur was now behind was crowded, as six IRS agents turned helpless soldiers struggled for their share of an economy of space. A couple enterprising agents had crawled under the van, but space was still sparse. Another body was clearly not wanted. A sea of eyes looked over at him with a mix of accusing stares and horrified glares. Arthur faced the agent Ralph had argued twice with and clicked his pen nervously. I want to file Form 1199B for immediate radio transmission for reinforcements, he said, hearing the beats of his own heart. The agent blinked. Oh, 1199B, that makes so much more sense than what he wanted, he pointed at Ralph. The maroon one is obviously supposed to be hand-delivered. Obviously, Arthur agreed, happy to see a sane man. The agent handed Arthur a burgundy form with a clipboard. A bullet hit the ground beside them as an agent temporarily lost his spot in the crowd. Hurry up and go back, someone from behind shouted. The crowd grumbled in agreement. Arthur knew of the form by protocol, and because he studied his revised operations manual nightly, but he had never actually dealt with the form. It was 30 lines long. 30 lines. Why in God's name would an emergency request for reinforcements be this long? Arthur thought, before the sentiment was quelled by his ardent professionalism. He began filling it out as fast as he could. He could feel pairs of eyes trying to burn their rage and impatience through him as he completed the third line on the form. An agent fell back to his hands and knees and started scooting himself under the van. The two men that were already under it protested loudly, but were in no position to keep him from taking up the empty space. His effort had jostled a man out to the side before he was fully under. Gunfire and screaming paired themselves like old friends, and the jostled agent pushed his way back into cover with a bullet in the shoulder. Arthur had completed ten lines. Hurry up, the man with the bullet wound cried as his starched white shirt soaked through with a stain of blood. Arthur diligently pushed through the form. The man with the bullet wound tapped his gun with jittering hands. The gesture was clear. If Arthur did not finish soon, he would push him out by force or end him himself. He was at line 20. Though time was never on his side, Arthur had defied the odds before. Just before the man tapping his gun decided to cock it, Arthur finished his form and promptly handed it to the radio operator. The operator looked it over, then called the form in. The operator on the receiving end wanted it read line by line. And before Arthur could hear whether or not the request went through, the man with the wound cocked his gun, Arthur's cue to run back to Ralph. Whatever he decided to do, there was a bullet waiting for him. So he ran. His feet struck the ground and catapulted him forward. 
A bullet whizzed past his ear. His legs pumped the ground. Another bullet struck near his feet, throwing debris into the air. He leapt at the van and landed face first next to Ralph's shoes. In seconds, he was on his feet and his back was firmly pressed against the van. An agent from the van he had just come from decided that Arthur's and Ralph's was a greener pasture with more space and tried to follow. He took his odds and the gamble did not pay. A bullet struck him in the leg and once his face hit the ground, another bullet obliterated his head. The crowded agents were happy to have the extra space and were not marred by the violence. Did you do it? Did they send for help? Ralph asked, not able to hide his desperation. Arthur nodded. Yeah, didn't hear a confirmation, though. Ralph turned his attention to the van behind them. Are they coming? He shouted. The radio operator shook his head. It's lunch hour, and they are off the clock. Of course they are, Arthur thought bitterly, then checked the time. It was 12.15. They would have to wait a whole 45 minutes like this, plus however long it took them to arrive. We're fucked, he said. Before Arthur could contemplate his impending doom any further, a roar of motorcycles screamed through the air with a primal bass. This was it. They had decided to send a motorized death squad their way. Soon slavers would ride right up to them and pick off whatever the barricaded city hadn't already. But the sound began to fade. The bikes were moving away from them. He could then hear the cheering of a hundred slavers and decided to push his luck and steal a glance from behind the van. The slavers barricaded behind their mutant cars and atop their wall had guns in the air as they cheered the motorcycle's departure. Then Arthur saw them moving, moving away from the city, but parallel to the mountain was a train of motorcycles pulling a throne of teeth like it was a chariot. Atop that throne sat the colonel, waving both arms back toward the city. Was the colonel abandoning ship before the rest of the IRS showed? Could he be going the same way he went around the mountain to catch up with himself and Rabia after they burnt it to a crisp? Could he be trying to flank Boyd? Arthur gazed at the fleeing train of motorcycles as they became specks on the horizon, and a new kind of dread and fear took over. Wherever the colonel was going, it was bad. And for the first time, Arthur realized that the tax army could fail. It was an odd reassurance that no matter what happened here, with this doomed and poorly trained group of pencil pushers turned soldiers, Boyd and the rest of his men would clean up and free the men and women inside. If Arthur died, at least it was for a cause. But now, if the cause failed, his death would mean nothing. Ralph's take on it was far more optimistic and naive. They're running away! he said with guarded glee. Maybe more will follow. Maybe if enough leave, we can take the city before Boyd shows. If he was only trying to convince himself, it looked like he did a poor job at it. Arthur ignored him, then sat down and leaned against the van. No sense in being uncomfortable if you had to wait. Ralph followed his lead. I don't get it, Ralph said, once he was firmly seated on the ground. They have us cornered. Why don't they just walk on up and finish the job? They don't have to. They have supplies and are safe inside their walls. It is smarter to just wait us out. If they don't kill us, starvation or dehydration will, Arthur said as he clicked his pen. The motor of one of the vans came to life. 
No less than a blink of an eye afterward did a shot ring out from the city. A crack in the windshield spread out like a spider's web, and the would-be escape artist went limp from death. Arthur weighed his desperation against his fear. At least the outcome of one was now perfectly clear. Are we going to make it? Ralph asked, after the senseless murder of one of their peers. It was strange to see Ralph vulnerable like this. The question was a real one from a man at his wit's end who needed comfort. You've made it out of worse, right, Arthur? This isn't so bad compared to what you've been through. Are we going to make it? A resounding no stamped across Arthur's mind. He looked over at the van that had just been shot. The engine was still running. Toxic fumes pumped out of the van's exhaust and into the crowd of bookkeepers and cubicle monkeys who were already uncomfortable in their fragile safety. He was about to let Ralph down, let him know that their lives were now in the hands of Henry S. Boyd, and explain to him why that was a very bad thing. He was about to tell the truth that, no, this was far worse than what he had gone through. Then his mind volunteered a thought that was at once sobering as it was terrifying. What would Rafia do? We're going to make it, Ralph, Arthur said, then repeated it to see if he himself believed the madness that had just escaped his mouth. Yeah? You really think so? Ralph asked with shaking hands. No, Arthur thought to himself. We are probably going to die horrifically. But his idea was worth a try. Ralph shifted in the dirt, then turned his body to face Arthur's. What do we do? Ralph asked, his eyes pleading. Arthur looked at Ralph and started clicking the top of his pen in rapid-fire succession. There was no way he could mask his own desperation. There was no way that he could be as confident as Ralph probably needed him to be. But he had to try. We are going to do something totally inadvisable, Arthur replied. We're going to do something incredibly stupid and dangerous. We might be able to save everyone who is still alive. He stopped clicking his pen. I have a plan. About the author. M.P. Fitzgerald is an author and humorist dedicated to injecting the feverish gonzo style into fiction. You can get Memos from the Wasteland, which is the official prequel to this book, free. It contains hilariously bleak office drama, Robbie's diary, and Arthur's last letter from his father. To get your copy, just head over to his website at mpfitzgerald.art. You'll also get free updates on future audiobooks and more. We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Music by Dustmice, available on all streaming services and dustmice.bandcamp.com.